Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. This is Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. Our candid conversation today is with Ken White. He's probably most famously known to many of you as a founder and regular contributor to the immensely popular blog, Popat which covers law, liberty, and leisure, and can be read at popat.com. Of interest to us, of course, is Popat's regular coverage of free speech issues, with Ken's coverage being particularly astute. Ken is a practicing attorney with a law degree from Harvard Law School and a bachelor's degree from Stanford University. Fancy, I know. We're all huge fans of Ken's writing here at FIRE, so I've been itching to have him on the show for quite some time now. And the plan, of course, was to talk about his blog and his annual censorious asshat of the year award, but I'm recording this on Sunday, January 8th, and last night a giant of the free speech world, Nat Hentoff, died. So we had to spend some time at the beginning of the show talking about Nat. We do, however, get into Ken's awards and his blog later in the conversation. Ken and I spoke over the phone, he at his home in California, me at my apartment in New York City. So if the conversation sounds like it happened over the phone, that's because it did. So here's Ken. So Ken, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. So the plan when I emailed you earlier this week to see if you wanted to talk um, was to discuss your censorious asshat of 2016 award. Uh, and you've been doing this censorious asshat award for a couple of years now. But last night we got some surprising news uh, about longtime free speech champion and jazz aficionado Nat Hentoff. Free thinking author, jazz critic, and columnist Nat Hentoff has died. His son, Tom Hentoff, says his father died yesterday from natural causes at his Manhattan apartment. He was 91. Um, when did you hear about the news? I saw you tweeted about it and said that Nat Hentoff was Freedom's biographer. Yeah, it's, it's well, I mean, gentleman was 91 years old, and you hope you live a life that good. Uh, you know, he, he achieved so much in so many different areas. I think he uh, made uh, so many people think about different areas, and I really admire his work in so many different fields. It's a great loss, but uh, I think at this point it's better to see it as a, a life lived well. My name is Nat Hentoff, and I am a reporter. Sometimes I write books, and my reporting has essentially been for well over 60 years, in large part, about how to keep this country what it's supposed to be, a self-governing republic. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. You know, he was 91 years old. His son, Nick Hentoff, said that he died listening to Billie Holiday, surrounded by friends. You know, I can't think of almost a better way to go out for a guy like that. Probably the way he'd want it to, the classic good death. But, you know, in looking back a little bit at some of the things, kind of refreshing my memory about what he achieved, um, he really was a renaissance man. He uh, 
wrote and learned and taught about so many different areas uh, from you know, jazz to uh, liberty to government and really was uh, someone who achieved in a lot of different areas. Yeah, he was a writer for The New Yorker, most famously probably for The Village Voice. And he was friends with people like Miles Davis and Duke Ellington. And he interviewed Malcolm X and Bob Dylan and uh, Che Guevara. I mean, it's just like he is a cultural icon of the 20th century uh, in a way that, I, I, you know, I don't know how many other people were. I mean, he, he was he was writing about these issues and about these people for 60 years, 60 years. So I, I first, I first learned about Nat when I started working for fire in 2012, uh, Nat Hentoff at the time was a member of our board of advisors. We've since, um, restructured our board of advisors and no longer have it right now. We're planning on putting it back in place in the future. Um, but Nat didn't do email. And when I started at fire, I was, uh, the assistant to fire president, Greg Lukianoff. And whenever Nat wanted to write about one of our cases, he would give Greg a call and ask us to fax him all the information that we had. And as a, chi- as a child of uh, the email age, I didn't know how to use a fax machine. But uh, as a good assistant and... Well, uh, in terms of his uh, level of technological expertise and you know, how he sort of transitioned into the Internet world and had uh, informed and intelligent commentary about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I, I really admired about him, you know, you mentioned him being a, a cultural icon, and I think that's true, and a, and a commenter on a lot of different parts of our culture. One of the things I, I admired about him was his resistance uh, to engage in, in what I call cultural bundling, which means, you know, I like jazz, and therefore I must believe X, Y, and Z. You know, I stand for free speech, and therefore I must also accept these political propositions. or He was very much uh, an iconoclast and very much someone who could you know, very vigorously argue for something that's typically associated with the right one day and very vigorously uh, argue for something associated with the left the next day. Uh, you know, he, could, he was a critic of all types of governments, all, both Democrat and Republican, and, uh, you know, his defense of free speech in different circumstances could put him adverse to just about everybody on the spectrum at one time or another. Uh, I think that's too rare, and I, I admired it. Yeah, well, you know, he's probably most famous for being a contrarian, at least within left, left-wing circles, for his uh, pro-life positions. Uh, but you talked about how he transitioned almost seamless, seamlessly, uh, at least with his free speech arguments, into the modern age. Uh, one of his big criticisms I read about this morning of Bill Clinton was the Communications Decency Act of the 90s, which, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, censorship issues when it came to how it regulated the Internet. So um, wrote it wrote at his typewriter with two fingers uh, until his death. And uh, and I'm actually I'm looking at Twitter and I'm seeing what some of the other people like Jamil Jaffer and some of the other heads of other organizations are saying. And they're always talking about he was how he was the fax machine's last great advocate. So we'll, we'll miss him deeply over at FIRE. Yeah, I think he will be. He should be mourned, and will be uh, on behalf of everyone who really cares about deep thought and uh, vigorous advocacy about free speech. And I and I will say to anyone who is you know of the younger generation and maybe doesn't remember Nat's the Village Voice column, I su- I suggest checking out um, his book Free Speech for Me, but not for Thee. Uh, also his memoirs, uh, most notably Speaking Freely. 
And then uh, there, David L. Uh, David L. Lewis, I believe, is his name. He was a producer, former producer for sixty minutes. Recently, did a fantastic um, biopic about him, a story about him, documentary about him called "The Pleasures of Being Out of Step." And I rewatched that last night uh, after hearing about Nat's death. And, and it's, it's actually a tremendous documentary about um, free speech as being the motivating ideal for someone. And it really was for Nat. So we'll miss him. But Ken, I brought you on to talk about your blog to uh, Popat, popat.com. Can you describe for our listeners what Popat is? Well, uh, it's kind of whatever I want it to be. But over the years, it's uh, become mostly a place where I talk about free speech issues, um, both legal and cultural, and about criminal justice issues, which are uh, two of the... uh, my main concerns and my main areas of practice as a lawyer. Uh, it's also stayed, for one of a better term, sort of a geek blog with a general sensibility uh, of interest in uh, games and uh, that sort of thing. And and where did you get this interest in the First Amendment, in free speech? Because you're a practicing attorney right now. That's not at the heart of your practice. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and you know, used to be a, U, a former U.S. attorney. Where did this interest come from? Well, I've I've been interested in free speech issues since at least high school and college. And uh, in college, uh, I mistakenly thought I had to take a lot of pre-law classes to get into law school and be a good lawyer. Uh, and the only upside of that was that uh, I took a lot of classes on First Amendment issues, enjoyed them immensely, and I wrote my uh, college honors thesis on um, hate speech laws on campus, uh, which was a burning issue even back then, uh, uh, 20, more than 25 years ago now. Um, and from there, during my early professional career, it remained a personal interest, even though I was doing uh, criminal law first as a prosecutor and then as uh, a defense attorney. And over the last 10 years or so, as I've written about it, more and more. Um, I've been able to get more and more involved in First Amendment litigation of all sorts. And, um, you know, as I've had the opportunity to meet people um, after first meeting them online and writing about them and with them, I've had the opportunity to get involved in more and more cases. So it's built to the part where now it's a significant part of my practice. So I like to tell younger lawyers that, you know, if there's an area that interests you and you want to be involved in, then get involved in it. Uh, Start writing about it. Start meeting the people who practice in that area. Start offering pro bono work in that area and sort of build your own focus that you want to build over the years. And why, why didn't you get into First Amendment work right out of the gate? Well, first of all, it's very hard for a lawyer to do. Yeah. There's no, you know, there there are a few big firms that do First Amendment work. Uh, certainly, there there are great uh, organizations like Fire and uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and uh, on occasion the ACLU. But you know, they're few and far between, and they're hard to get into. Uh, so, uh, it really wasn't much of an opportunity for me to do it back then. And criminal law was what I was focused on career-wise. But, um, you know, I, I, I like to think that the criminal law for focus got me the trial room skills and litigation skills that helped me in the long term as a free speech lawyer. Yeah, you've said that you have developed, you know, a, a First Amendment practice, so to speak, um, over the years. 
Is that in connection with this Popat signal that you put out periodically? Can you tell our listeners what that is? Well, sure. I mean, Popat as a blog has been ongoing for, in one form or another, for more than 10 years now. And a number of years ago, I started thinking, you know, I, I, there, I have a decent number of readers, and some of them are lawyers who might be willing to do pro bono work. So I started, I started asking for pro bono help for people uh, in cases that interested me. And I just sort of, um, you know, jokingly called it the Pope hat signal, like the bat signal, and it just kind of stuck and, and caught on. And so now and then when someone, um, you know, my focus is usually people who get sued in frivolous suits for writing things online. Uh, that's the classic case. And you know, as you know, these days it doesn't really matter whether you're right or wrong or whether or not your speech is absolutely clearly protected by the First Amendment. Um, litigation is ruinously expensive, and you can be as, as right as you can be, and if you don't have a lawyer, it really doesn't matter. You can still be crushed underneath the wheels of the system. So my aim is to, to connect lawyers willing to do some pro bono work or reduced rate work with bloggers and writers who need them, who are being harassed legally uh, for exercising their rights. Do you have an emblematic case that you could share with our listeners that you've become involved in or your um, supporters have? Sure. I mean, one of the earliest ones I did was a blogger um, back east who was a college student who uh, was criticizing a local naturopath uh, as a quack. Now, the term quack is classic opinion. Um, applied all the time to all sorts of practitioners, and it's absolutely protected by the First Amendment. But this guy's wife was um, a lawyer, and she had the ability to harass this college student basically for free. So I put together a team, including a, uh, a great uh, New Hampshire attorney and uh, Mark Randaza, the uh, 800-pound gorilla of the First oh, yeah. litigation, and uh, we backed them down and got them to go away. And and it was a great feeling, and uh, fortunately that lawyer, uh, the wife, is no longer um, threatening people with First Amendment cases. Now she's just the DA of the county. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the legal system goes. Uh, and other cases have uh, some interesting ones. Um, we, I, I helped put together a bunch of notable lawyers to protect a guy uh, who was um, criticizing a so-called AIDS denialist, uh, a, someone who says basically there's no con uh, connection between HIV and AIDS, uh, and was suing uh, people who criticized him for saying that. You know, we've helped a great deal of people sometimes in the open and sometimes sort of through back channels. Um, sometimes the best solution for the people in trouble, the people facing legal threats, is a big, splashy public defense. And sometimes the best solution is someone, finding someone through back channels to say to the lawyer on the other side, you don't want this to go public because we're going to humiliate your client and, uh, you know, uh, curb stomp you. And, you know, it turns out being whatever's best for the client is what gets done. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, a play from Fire's Playbook. We write private letters to universities trying to get them to do the right thing. And after one, if after one or two letters they don't do the right thing, then we take it public, and 90% of the times that's enough to get the university to back down. Sometimes we have to go the extra step where we sponsor litigation, but most of the time, as you say, I mean, a big public splash is enough to get the injustice uh, 
uh, right, righted. Um, you know, Justice Louis Brandeis, of course, sunlight is the best disinfectant, uh, electric light, the most efficient policeman. Do you, Popat has a pretty significant readership. I mean, when you put up these signals, do you almost always find out, find an attorney that's willing to offer pro bono help? Almost always. Uh, and uh, that may be sometimes, uh, a matter of selection. So I only put up the signal in cases where I think it's likely to work out. Um, there have been times when I thought it's not going to work and I don't put up the signal. Um, you know, there are a lot of generous lawyers out there, very generous with, my to- with their time. And one of the things I like best is thanking them and recognizing them afterwards. Uh, but unfortunately, there are increasingly cases where, you know, I, I could put out the signal, it wouldn't work just because the foes involved are too well-funded, too gigantic, and the time involved would be too much. And, you know, that's when you you look to other people and you try to get teams together informally uh, to to help. I'm a communications professional. Um, You know, Fire has its own blog. I have my own podcast, of course. How long did it take you to build a significant readership on POPEP? And, And why do you think they come back? Uh, well, you know, in terms of how long it took a significant readership, um, I would say at least five to eight years in that range. And really, it comes and goes. You know, I had peaks during times when I was writing about things like uh, the famous case of the lawyer Charles Carrion uh, threatening uh, the online comic The Oatmeal, or, you know, the peak of the Prenda Law saga when some uh, some porn copyright trolls were being menaced in the courts. It, it comes and goes. You build sort of a loyal core readership, and then the big groups, um, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. But, uh, you know, particularly for lawyers doing blogs and podcasts and things like that, or I think really any professionals. There's a lot of hucksters out there wanting you to sort of build it up quick with uh, search engine optimization tricks and, um, you know, quantity over quality and that type of thing. And, you know, that might get you some, some brief readership or some brief traffic. But I think you just have to do it by giving people stuff they like to read that entertains them kind of a grind over the years. There's no quick and easy way to do it. Is there any, are there any other legal bloggers out there that you think are doing it right and that you would recommend to our listeners? Sure. Uh, My friend Scott Greenfield, who's a criminal defense attorney in uh, New York, uh, does not only great work, but an amazing volume of it. I have no idea how he keeps up. I only assume he, he doesn't sleep. But he is there every day talking about important issues in uh, American criminal defense, uh, and he does a wonderful job of it. Um, Mark Bennett uh, out of Texas also does a great job, and his stuff is at the intersection of criminal defense and First Amendment, which I think uh, is really interesting. There are a lot of great uh, criminal law bloggers out there, and actually your question makes me think that I should uh, somehow put together uh, a recommendation list. Well, I see that you have the blog role, of course, but uh, and it's not, not quite the same thing. There's also Eugene Volokh with the Volokh conspiracy. Um, a lot of blog. I mean, that's a huge cadre of bloggers over there, but, um, you know, another, right, another... And of that, a lot of those are first amendment bloggers or, or more general constitutional law bloggers, uh, or care over there does great work on the first amendment. And of course, no one matches Eugene Volokh on, uh, writing about first amendment stuff, I think. 
So I want to I want to turn next to another thing. Uh, you know, of course, the the raison d'etre for having you on today is to talk about your censorious asshat award. <laughs> what what is that? Well, you know, um, I, the, the kind of style of writing that developed at Popat was sort of. Um, not what you would describe as um, as white shoe law firm, and some would say not professional. It's sort of uh, um, humorous, informal, occasionally crass, uh, and fun. And you know, uh, we use bad words, uh, we throw elbows, and when we see people abusing power or abusing the legal system to try to try to shut up their critics, uh, we tend to call them names. Um, I don't act that way in court, usually, but uh, as a writer, I feel free to. So a few years ago, we started thinking, why don't we just collect the worst stories of the year and see who is the biggest jerk about free speech that we've written about. And uh, that was the uh, censorious asshat um, of the year. So uh, we've done it on and off for five years, and uh, this year was uh, as good as any. We probably had about... uh, 2,500 uh, votes, which is a pittance compared to, you know, mega online polls. But for people who actually care about stuff, it's, I'm happy to see it. There's a debate within FIRE that I have to get your opinion on because you use the word often. The word censorious versus the word censorial. <laughs> Here we go. Yes. Someone informed me I was using the word wrong, uh, that uh, it does not mean... Uh, advocating censorship or attempting censorship, uh, that it means instead criticizing. Uh, Well, quite possibly, but, you know, it's a little too late to retcon it, I think, at this point. So I'm just going to have to march on being proudly wrong uh, with the you-know-what-I-meant type of attitude. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in your defense... I'm not quite sure what the the proper word is. I you know I, I Google it and I look in all these different dictionaries and it seems like it could go either way. And you're definitely not the only First Amendment uh, free speech advocate uh, who uses it, and we often even use it at, in fire and at fire in our writing. So, my, well, my feeling is if they can wor- if they can ruin the word literally, then I can damn well make censorious mean. At- advocating censorship. <laughs> and I think Steven Pinker, who wrote the, the Sense of Style, would agree with you, this idea that language is living, of course. So we need a word. We need a ner- word to describe these asshats. So censorious is as good as the next. Let's, let's uh, talk about some of the folks and institutions on your list. Number one, Donald Trump. Trump is interesting because uh, he certainly is one of the loudest and most prominent and most far-reaching uh, cheerleaders for various sort of censorship, and one of the most prominent uh, skeptics of the First Amendment. But there's quite a delta between the talk and the action. I mean, he has certainly uh, abused the legal system before. He's in effect bragged about it. You know, bragged about how we what he wanted to do to a reporter who questioned his net worth was to put him through the stress and expense of litigation. But at the moment, at least, and uh, hopefully this will continue, it's it's been mostly talk. Yeah, well, you know, he talks about things like taking away, stripping Americans of citizenship and throwing them in jail uh, if they burn the American flag, opening up the libel laws. I don't really quite know how you can strip an American of their citizenship, given that the Supreme Court has ruled that to be unconstitutional, I believe. Uh, well, they've also ruled flag burning to be constitutionally protected speech. So um, I think Donald Trump loses on two scores there. Um, But Donald Trump, 
he got 497 votes, which I guess was 21% or so of of the tally. But he didn't win. He didn't win. Let's let's talk about Twitter next. Sure. Well, Twitter. I mean, um, obviously, one of my bugaboos is making the distinction between official censorship and individuals exercising their rights. And this is actually something that I uh, argue with uh, some of my friends at FIRE or other free speech organizations now and then. I think individuals and private companies engaging in freedom of association um, shouldn't be confused with censorship. It might be wrong-headed, it might be illiberal, but it's not censorship. Um, A lot of people disagree with me on that, think that when someone like Twitter decides to clean house and uh, kick out a bunch of white nationalists, that's censorship. And I think that's never going to be an argument that we're going to conclude. But I do think that Twitter, at the least, has done the half-assed job of articulating what free speech is and what censorship is. You know, they, they frame themselves as a free speech platform, and then they started doing what private entities do, which is make decisions about who they want on their platform. And they've kind of danced around what they're doing. They've never articulated it well, and they've never basically said, hey, you know, ultimately we're a private business and we don't want Nazi shouters here, and if you don't like it, go start uh, your own Nazi shouter platform, which appears people have done. Uh, So I didn't think it should win, but just in intellectual honesty, I threw it on there because I knew a lot of people would want it to win. Yeah, well, you know, Back in 2012, Tony Wang, who was the general manager of Twitter UK, called Twitter the free speech wing of the free speech party, uh, which was a phrase that was repeated by their CEO of the time. And when I, when I saw that, I was like, this is brilliant. And I put it in my, uh, my Twitter description. But since then, it seems like they've backed away from that, that belief, um, at least in principle. The problem is people use the term free speech to mean different things. Um, they can mean it uh, in a legal sense, um, in meaning that you know speech protected from uh, censorship by the government or through censorship through the courts, or there's this sort of vague, touchy-feely cultural sense uh, in which people think, well, you know, private people and private individuals should act in a particular way that. Um, uh, that encourages speech or doesn't target speech. And I think that's always going to be a very difficult thing to define. There's always going to be some tension between when you're defining free speech in a cultural way, there's always going to be some tension between whose speech gets protected and, you know, people boycotting uh, a store for selling a book are exercising their own free expression. And you know, whose free expression do you celebrate? Uh, the author, uh, the bookstore that wants to sell the book, or the people who want to criticize it? Yeah, well, I mean, in most of the world, we don't have a First Amendment. So the only argument that you can make, unless you you know, want to play on the platforms of you know, Dutch, the Dutch Parliament or whatnot, that's defining free expression much more narrowly than we do in the United States is you, you kind of have to make those moral and cultural arguments. Otherwise, you're losing in, you know, I, you know 90% of the world. That's true. Uh, and I'm, I'm very happy to say I'm an uh, American exceptionalist when it comes to the First Amendment. <laughs> um, uh, unashamed to defend it. And when people say uh, it's compared to the rest of the world, uh, extreme, uh, I say you're goddamn right it is. <laughs> well, you have a couple of examples of uh, 
free speech mis- misdeeds on public college campuses. Uh, and I want to talk about a few of those because two of those are cases that FIRE has become involved in. Uh, University of Wisconsin-Superior, tell us about what happened there. Uh, let's see. I, I think I also talked about U- University of Northern Michigan, but uh, Superior, as I recall, um, is where they threatened um, the student uh, student paper for doing a satirical article, and a lot of it was really response to student outrage as opposed to you know administration um, uh, things originating in the administration. But basically, there was a April Fool's edition. Um, and uh, people thought it was racist and sexist and everything else and expressed outrage that such a thing could be allowed. And uh, the administration's error, I think, was um, in the way it approached it. Instead of saying it very may, may well be uh, racist and sexist and other ists, um, and we don't like that, we condemn it. However, it's free speech, which would have been the right way to approach it. Uh, they started saying that they would investigate, there would be inf- official investigations. They uh, basically kissed up to the complaining students. And, uh, you know, when, an inve- when a public entity even says it's investigating something that's clearly free speech, I think that's chilling and legally questionable. Yeah, and Northern Michigan University, I mean, this is one of the most absurd cases that FIRE has seen in its history. You have a group of students struggling with depression, which you've written actually quite a bit about for POPAT, um, who go to their administration for help and resources and are told by the administration that they can't speak with their peers about their problems, um, lest they get expelled or suspended. Right. I mean, there was an actual policy for a time that said if you talk about self-harm or thinking about hurting yourself or killing yourself, that you can be disciplined. And, you know, as near as anyone could tell, the idea was you shouldn't burden your peers with this sort of thing. But I think it was a a simply monstrous policy. I I can't really think of a college policy more sheer evil that I've heard of uh, in the last few years. To their credit, they did change it. And to their credit, it looks like they may have abandoned it possibly even before people caught on, but they really failed to articulate that it was not the policy. They failed to walk it back publicly, and that's why they get got very correctly hammered by everyone. I, I, I don't think any serious writer or outlet anywhere thought that it was anything remotely acceptable. When I wrote about it, I... Uh, I got an opinion from uh, a classmate and friend, uh, Dr. Mendel Felcher, who is, uh, among other things, uh, does um, counseling on a college campus cluster. And he was outraged. And, I mean, this goes to the heart of what should be done about serious problems like depression and anxiety versus what shouldn't be. And conveying to troubled students, students suffering from suicidal ideation that they can't talk to other people could very literally kill them. And uh, just the fact that some functionary at a college thought that that was a acceptable idea on a legal level, on an administrative level, or on a human level is just absolutely despicable. Someone ought to lose their job, but no one will. Not that we know of yet. I, I, I guess the Department of Justice, and I'm not too familiar with this, my colleague uh, Marika is looking into this some more, I guess the Department of Justice is doing an investigation of some sort there. But we wrote a letter to them. Um, we tried to fix this privately, uh, and they just refused to respond to us. So then 
of course, we have to resort to putting out a press release the week of their homecoming. So you either, you can either do it the right way or you can do it in a terrible way and uh, ruin, ruin your homecoming. But North, Northern Michigan you know, at 12% didn't win the poll either. You also have this catch-all category in keeping with uh, Popat's humor, uh, damn college kids on Ken's lawn, um, which did not win either. You know, that just even makes me even more angry at them. I, you know, we, 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 we criticize college students a fair amount, and I know that a lot of them roll their eyes at it. Only some college students um, are the ones driving calls for censorship. Uh, only some college students deserve that sort of criticism. And uh, I always point out sooner or later that uh, if college students in America have bad ideas about censorship or liberty, it's because we taught it to them, and uh, it's our collective, our adults' fault. But still, they're, you know, young kids uh, with no responsibility having fun, so I, I have to try to kick them in the ass because they annoy me. <laughs> well, um, you know, you've got a, you've got a bunch of, a bunch of possible contenders on here, in, including Cracked, uh, which we at FIRE have often seen their free speech analysis as well and sort of kind of scratched our head, uh, especially given that they're so dependent uh, on the First Amendment for a lot of what they do, that they would be out there um, writing essentially Popat-style law splainers um, without the legal knowledge or uh, fundamental principled understanding of free speech is, is just is just hilarious. Yeah, the, the cracked free speech law explainers always strike me as basically sort of a, a transcript of uh, some stoned guy in a dorm room going, wait, wait, guys, let me explain. Um, much of it is not right, and uh, much of it is misleading. But I still retract. They're, they're still good. Yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was surprised to see Jeff Jarvis uh, on there. Um, I wasn't familiar with the incident that you know, got him this nomination, but I, I went to journalism school in college and he was one of the first Twitter followers I had as I moved into the professional world. What did he do? Uh, basically, there's a very popular parody of Jeff Jarvis on Twitter. Uh, and um, there was a parody article attributed to the parody Jeff Jarvis figure. Uh, I think it was um, in Esquire. And it was clearly a parody, and Esquire is known for running these parodies. And But the real Jarvis nonetheless went on Twitter and made a big show saying, you know, I need a lawyer, I've been libeled. And I don't, he never sued, and he to some extent backed off. But uh, the main lesson, I think, uh, from there is that when you're mad at uh, people making fun of you, take a deep breath, talk to some friends before you go anywhere and start talking about lawyering up. Well, there are some lawyers, um, such as, and I believe he's a lawyer, Patrick Zarelli, who's, who's threatened you, right? And he, he made this list. I don't think uh, Patrick Zarelli is a lawyer. I could be. Or he's a legal marketing expert. Yeah, I know. Whatever that means. Lawyer. I, I think you're yeah, whatever that means. I think he's actually a Muppet. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, he's a, a so-called legal marketing expert. Um, who likes to threaten people on behalf of lawyers. Uh, and uh, I haven't heard from him in a long time, but I'm kind of fond of him on a, in a weird sort of way, just because his, uh, his threats are just so uh, bumptious and, and cinematic and uh, sincere that you, you can't help but sort of like him. Well, the, oh, the overwhelming win winner, I guess not overwhelming winner, Donald Trump had a lot of votes too, was the city of Parma... Ohio's police department. 
Yeah. Were you surprised by that? I was uh, both surprised and a little heartened. I was frankly expecting that somebody would, uh, you know, start posting things, you know, everyone vote for Twitter or everyone vote for Donald Trump and bringing in people from uh, Twitter or Reddit or something like that. But I think this was actually a very sincere from the most frequent readers of Popat reaction. And I think it was a good one. So let me tell you a little bit of what the city of Parma did. Uh, they have a police department, like many cities, and sometimes people disagree with the department, like many cities. And uh, this guy uh, created a satirical Facebook page, one of what must be a million satirical Facebook pages, making fun of the Parma uh, police department. You know, and not in particularly subtle ways. It wasn't the greatest parody ever, but it basically suggested that they were sort of bumptious and maybe a little racist and uh, a little stupid. And there was nothing remotely legally actionable about it. Uh, but Parma Police Department went nuts. Um, they got search warrants and, and subpoenas, and they found the identity of the guy who did the page. And they got the local so-called law director, the uh, uh, the local prosecutor, who was a private attorney who contracted to be a prosecutor for the city, uh, to prosecute the guy for interfering with uh, public functions. I mean, this is a felony charge. You can go to state prison for it. And um, they prosecuted him, and it went all the way through trial. And he was very promptly acquitted by a sensible jury. But... Um, I think the reason that people responded to this, and um, and rightly so, was there's so much you know, legal bluster out there, so many threats, so many sort of stupid ideas about what should be done for people to people for talking in ways we don't like. When you see something that's actual, genuine, classic First Amendment violation, a pure abuse of government power to retaliate by the government against dissent and against criticism, it stands out. And here you had a police department and a legally and morally corrupt prosecutor um, abusing the, the criminal justice system to attack a guy for doing a satirical Facebook page. And uh, they're being sued now. They should be. I hope that the taxpayers have to pay this guy a nice chunk of change. I hope that leads them to fire some people. Uh, but this was completely outrageous, uh, unacceptable, and should have been a much b bigger story nationwide. Yeah, as you say in the introduction to to this poll, um, there's a lot of bluster in, in the not in the nominees. There's a lot of bark, but not every case involves any bite. Uh, you know, Northern Michigan University, for example, you have you have some serious bite that could you know potentially kill people. Um, but at the city of Parma Police Department, you definitely have some bite, and you have censorship in its most fundamental form, in the form of a government entity, um, you know, seeking to lock someone up for doing what citizens since the founding of this country have done, which is poke fun at their leaders. So yeah, it's it's heartening to me as well to hear that. Um, uh, the, that your readers chose the city of Parma Police Department. And uh, just the, the, the prosecution's theory was so stupid. I mean, their theory was interference with government function, and their evidence was that some people were confused and, um, you know, thought that this was the real city of Parma uh, police department, even though it had every tell of satire. And uh, to be blunt, you'd have to be stupid to confuse it for the real 
city of Parma. And, you know, the whole point of the First Amendment and, and of satire is that you, know, you can't set the bar that satire is not legal if it fools anyone. Uh, satire is going to fool people, and it's still protected when it fools people. Um, if satire is only legal when it fools nobody, when nobody falls for it, um, then you're not going to have satire because we got a, a, a deal-breaking level of stupid people, and we always will. <laughs> or careless people, or people who don't le- read closely, or people who don't inform themselves, and that's actually part of the point of satire. You know, somebody and I don't remember who said that uh, all satire is a shared joke between the author and the reader at the expense of a hypothetical dupe who takes it literally. Um, and there are plenty of those dupes around in real life. And you actually happen to be an established satirist yourself, uh, if I'm not mistaken. You you host a satirical Twitter account. Uh, well, uh, I'm not personally involved in it, but two of my co-bloggers, Patrick and Derek, uh, run what I think is an absolutely brilliant satire uh, of the North Korea Twitter account. Uh, and the Democratic People's uh, Republic of North Korea. Uh, and um, it frequently takes people in, both uh, regular people and uh, the media, people who should know much better. And Patrick and Derek uh, count coup and put up the victories where they've uh, fooled um, uh, major media outlets into thinking this is really Kim Jong-un making comments or attacking Donald Trump or doing something. It's hilarious. It's occasionally a little scary, like the time that Patrick um, convinced, uh, I think it was Denmark, that uh, North Korea had declared war on Cyprus. <laughs> little un- I, th- I, think he, uh, I think he stepped back for a few days after that. But, I, I, um, you know, if I, it's not quite blowing my own horn because I very rarely contribute content to it. I'm just not good at it. But Patrick and Derek both have an excellent ear for the style of uh, totalitarian propaganda, and they're also brilliant at using it as a comment on uh, American society. In other words, uh, it, it not only succeeds in terms of uh, aping the style of totalitarians, it also makes clever comments, I think, about uh, what's going on in America. So I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with it, although uh, very, very rarely to give any content to it. Well, doing that sort of thing is a skill. Uh, you know, b- being satirical in a way that actually sounds like the people you're satirizing um, is, an, is a tremendous skill. One I, I as well do not have. Um, but they do such a good job that they've developed quite the following. I think it's something like 160,000 Twitter followers, which is crazy. Yeah, it's three times the following of Popat, and justly so. And if, and if your listeners want, it's uh, at DPRK underscore news. And uh, they're hilarious and uh, brings me joy uh, every day. <laughs> well, we're just starting 2017 now, Ken. Um, you know, I'm sure you're keep starting your database for the award in 2017. What do you, what do you see um, on the horizon for free speech um, globally um, or in the United States or, or on campuses? Oh, well, you've been a very broad question. Yeah. Uh, well. Here's what I see. I see the need for scrutiny and vigilance with the Trump administration. Um, I am anti-Trump, and uh, but I think that just there are objective signs when someone uh, takes office who has been so overtly hostile to free speech. I think it's reasonable to watch them very closely. 
Uh, on the other hand, I think that we need to be careful not to cry wolf. This has been a real problem with criticisms of Trump in general, I think, and not mistake, um, you know, every yop on Twitter or every comment as actual um, government censorship. So I think we need to watch the government very closely to see what they do officially uh, and call it out if it happens, but on the other hand, not confuse talk uh, with action. Um, I'm hoping that uh, that vigilance, um, and you know, if there is any attempt to censor from the Trump administration, that that might be a vehicle we can use to sort of uh, light the spark of more interested freedom of expression on college campuses. Um, I, I'd like us to continue to focus on that, and you know, great institutions like yours to do so. And to uh, to the extent the Trump administration is very unpopular on most campuses, and I think it is, to use it as a instrument to inspire more interest in basic American civic virtues. To to say basically, you know, this power that you advocate to censor, think about the administration using it. How do you feel about that? And you know, this is the object lesson of why you don't want to give more power to censor to the state. Uh, so I'm hoping that the Trump administration will be a, a useful rhetorical tool to get more people on campus interested in ideas about due process and free speech. And worldwide, I mean, we remain tremendously lucky in terms of how free we are to speak, and I think we should continue with uh, criticism and outreach to other countries uh, from places where you can get snatched up and killed uh, for speaking or criticizing the state, all the way to our friends and allies and uh, who share our same cultural heritage, who are sort of on the margins of freedom of speech and help them see why hate speech laws and, you know, prohibiting talking about the Holocaust the wrong way and things like that, why those are dangerous, why those help promote other censorship as well. Well, Ken, I want to thank you. I know we're running out of time here. It's a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon at this point, um, and and you've got kids to attend to. But by way of closing, do you have like a free speech hero that you look to when you think about these issues? I know we talked about Nat Hentoff earlier, and he was that that person for many people. But do you have do you have anyone else that comes to mind, or any books that you would recommend? You know, I would recommend um, following uh, the blog, the Volokh Conspiracy, and reading things that Eugene Volokh writes. Um, I'm a great admirer of his, uh, both because I think he's probably one of the top thinkers and practitioners on the First Amendment, but also because I think he's very intellectually honest in terms of talking about speech he doesn't like and, you know, pointing out um, how laws work and how, you know, you don't advocate uh, for laws just because they seem to temporarily uh, uh, help your team. So he's one, my friend, uh, Mark Randaza, who's a tireless uh, pit fighter for free speech in the courts is definitely one. And uh, the members of the um, fire are certainly one. I'm a huge admirer of your organization and uh, a big supporter of it. And so there are many good people out there doing good work. And all you have to do is go out and, and read about it and inform yourself. Well, how do our readers stay in touch with what you're doing? Well, 
result, they can continue to, uh, if they like, to follow Popat on Twitter, to read the blog, which I hope to be more active on this year. And I'm going to be launching a Popat podcast this year. I saw that, yeah. So uh, I'm a little intimidated by the uh, technical end of uh, producing a podcast, but I'm really looking forward to what I'm going to be doing with it. And the first episode coming out soon uh, is called Fighting Words, and it talks about the backstory of Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, the, the famous Fighting Words case, and how the Fighting Words doctrine um, arose really from a uh, season of terrible uh, discrimination and abuse in America. Wow. Well, I'm sure uh, um, that'll interest our readers. So, our, I say, I'm saying readers again, our listeners. Um, so please do tell us once that's up and, and I can plug it on this podcast. And as far as the technical expertise that goes into making a podcast, uh, Aaron Reese, who is our, our editor, um, didn't know really anything about um, putting together podcasts from the technical side um, until he just started doing it. So my advice to you, and I'm sure Aaron's advice to you as well, would be to just just hop on in um, and buy nice microphones. And I, it, it, it's, it's hard to overstate how... Um, good microphones can up the production value of your podcast. Well, thanks. I'll keep that in mind. All right. Well, Ken, thanks for thanks for coming on the show again to our listeners. It's popat.com. Um, highly recommended. And thanks, Ken. Thank you. It's been a privilege, and thank you for all that Fire does. This podcast is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, everyone, thanks again for listening.